when Bill called me and we talked about speaking on Mark 15, I thought, wow. And uh, the reason I thought, wow, is because everybody has a crisis of faith sooner or later. Everybody. I don't care who you are. Everyone comes to a time in their life, and they don't usually talk about it. Mine was in my mid-20s, and I was raised in a Christian home, but my parents were nominal, really, at best, Christians. And so I went to university. Uh, I, I, I tried my best to live a Christian life somewhere around my mid to late 20s, and I, I didn't talk about it. I didn't tell anybody about it, but I knew down deep inside I was dying, and my, I was dying in my faith. And that's, that's ironic now. You know, I'm a pastor out in L.A. of a church. It's just crazy. And uh, I don't know how I, I'm, uh, that God or why God called me there to do that job. It's overwhelming. There's so many people out there. But I know where I am now is so different from where I was in my 20s. But I don't think I could be where I am now if I hadn't gone through what I went through in my 20s. And basically, I got to a point where the, the, the primary issue for me was could I trust this Bible stuff? You know, my mom and dad kind of believed it, but it was just nominal. And then the thing that really got me was the whole crucifixion issue. When Bill said you were at Mark 15, I thought, my goodness, he's at Mark 15. And it's like, okay, God, you obviously want me to tell my story. But my story is one of what I discovered about the cross. So I'm, I'm going to stick to your, your, uh, your passage, and I'm going to kind of uh, unleash here my own struggle with history and with the Bible at the same time. So all I'm going to do, I think preachers do this all the time. We get to Easter and we get to these important dates and we're just so benign in our delivery of the gospel. And it's probably because we're so used to it in the West. So what I'm going to do is I'm, gonna, I'm just going to teach for a moment what actually happens here in, in uh, Mark 15. And I'll get to, I'll have to avoid commentary through the way. I'm not going to get philosophical or theological in the beginning. I just want to tell you the story that I discovered in history, okay? And so let me start. There's a greater context in Mark 15, isn't there? A wider context, and you find it in all the Gospels. We find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be betrayed by a friend and arrested by the Sanhedrin, not because of anything he did wrong, but because these are power-hungry men, and they know Jesus, if his ministry keeps flourishing, they're going to lose their power, and so the Sanhedrin thugs, and yeah, there were thugs among the religious leaders, came to arrest Jesus. You've heard the Bible tells you that Jesus prays a prayer, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass for me, which is understandable since there were thousands of crucifixions around the streets of Jerusalem during the lifetime of Jesus, which means every time Jesus made a trip into Jerusalem, there would have been crosses lining the roads of people who had been crucified who had violated the peace of Rome, the Pax Romanus, the peace of Rome. It was the highest value in Rome. If you did something to violate that, they crucified you. Just so that people would know, look at this vivid imagery of what happens to you if you go against Rome. So Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. Remember, when he came into the earth, he knew the purpose. And so he's seen crucifixion. He knows that's going to happen to me. And also, the deeper the relationship you have with somebody, the more painful the separation, right? The deeper the relationship, the more painful the separation. Well, we're told in Scripture that there was perfect unity in the diversity of the Trinity. So no relationship was as deep as the one between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He knows that's going to be abandoned because God is going to turn his back on his own son so that he will never have to turn his back on you. And so Jesus knows all this is coming. In Luke 22, we're also told that Jesus sweats drops of blood. For a long time, that was kind of like dramatic for me until I understood that was an actual medical condition called hematidrosis, which is where basically... Uh, the subcutaneous uh, capillaries dilate 
and it mixes blood and sweat. And it only happens under the most extreme conditions. So you've got to basically be suffering an anxiety attack of the harshest kind. And then what makes that interesting is for 24 to 48 hours after you experience hematidrosis, the skin is very sensitive to touch, which is also interesting because you know what's about to happen to Jesus over the next 48 hours. Now, John McKay, who worked for National Geographic for many years, describes Luke as a first-rate historian. And what he's saying is, when you read the gospel account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you can trust that what you're reading today is an accurate reflection of what was originally written. That's amazing. In other words, he says, if you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust any work, any work of antiquity. And so, what I'm going to do is show you step-by-step step how we get to Mark 15. Matthew 26 says, first... The Sanhedrin, the thugs, arrest Jesus. And the Bible says they spat in his face, beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Now, I know you've heard the story, but who's the Sanhedrin? Sanhedrin comes from a Greek word that means assembly. And it dates all the way back to the Old Testament from Numbers 11. Each little village and city in Israel would send a representative to be on the Supreme Court to judge and rule over the affairs of Israel. They were called the Sanhedrin, and they were led by the chief priest, who kind of served as the president. So by the time we get to the New Testament, the Sanhedrin's made up of 70 men who oversee the affairs of Israel. Even though Rome was the occupying authority, they still allowed the Jews to discipline and serve as judges over themselves. They gave them complete civil and criminal jurisdiction. Now, why is this group of Sanhedrin who are ruling over Israel, coming to arrest Jesus. And why are they so angry that they start beating him and mocking him before the trial begins? Now, the answer, and this is where we, we find out from history. We don't only need the Bible to tell us what's going on here. History helps us as well. We know that Rome paid good money and gave good benefits to those who would keep their finger in the dike to make sure there was no civil unrest. And Rome discovered that Jewish traders who loved money and power more than their own tradition and people were perfect candidates to keep the peace. So over time, the religious Sanhedrin actually became traitors because it was more important to them to keep the peace in Rome so that they could keep getting paid and keep their power and position. When Jesus comes along, he gets a great following. And even though Jesus never talks about an earthly kingdom of any kind, the, the Sanhedrin lived day by day in absolute fear that one day Jesus is going to change his mind and disturb the peace of Rome, which means they would lose their money and benefits. So they want Jesus dead. And if you follow the story of the Gospels, the point at which they make their decision with certainty to kill Jesus was when Jesus, in John 11, raised Lazarus from the dead. Now isn't that interesting? Do you think that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, that they'd say, wow, he is the Messiah. Instead, they say, let's kill him. Why? It doesn't matter what is true. If it impacts your money and position, you don't care. And they didn't care. They weren't looking for truth. They just wanted to maintain their priorities, which was money and power. So by the time they arrest Jesus, according to Luke 22, it says the men were guarding Jesus. They began mocking, beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things. Now remember who this is that they're doing this to. This is Jesus who shows great compassion, you know, who, who speaks with a woman at the well in Samaria, you know, who tells the woman called in adultery that who condemns you, and then no one, neither do I. This is a man of grace, mercy, compassion, did nothing but good. And the Sanhedrin show up, and the Bible tells us that they beat him, first of all, with open hand, 
and then with closed fist, and they blindfolded him, which is interesting because, you know, if you see a, a, a punch coming, you can flinch and kind of soften the blow, but if you can't see it coming, and they're beating him all the way from the garden until the illegal trial at midnight among the Sanhedrin judges. Constant brutality after he had suffered hematidrosis in the garden where his skin is sensitive to touch. And you go on to read in the scriptures that they deny him food and water. He is completely fatigued. Step two tells us that the Sanhedrin then, they're frustrated, so they send Jesus to Pilate. Now, here's why they're frustrated. They want Jesus dead, but the only charge they come up with is blasphemy. Blasphemy under Sanhedrin law deserves death. But Rome doesn't care about some Jewish man blaspheming a Jewish god. So they're frustrated because they know even though this deserves death in their culture, Rome will not allow them to exact capital punishment. So they got to come up with another charge. So the charge they come up with is what? Treason. They give a Pilate a charge that they know Pilate's going to be forced to deal with. They claim that Jesus claimed to be the king over and above Caesar. Well, now Pilate has to take notice. Now, here's what we know of Pilate, not only in Scripture, but in history. If you, don't, if you don't even have the Bible, we know this character, Pilate. We know that he was trying to climb the political ladder. We know that as a procurator and governor, he's responsible for the peace. And the best news to Rome is no news. They don't want to hear if you have civil unrest. You just, you just stamp it out immediately. We don't want to hear about it. Just take care of it. And so that's why the crosses would have lined the streets of Rome as a reminder of what happens if you violate the peace as a deterrent. Don't do that or we're going to kill you in a most painful way. Now, here's what's interesting about Pilate's encounter. You have the story in Mark 15, but the wider context again is the Gospels. Pilate's encounter with Jesus, it must have been so non-threatening to Pilate because Pilate would have been looking for the smallest thing in Jesus that would have led him believe that Jesus is going to deserve the peace. He can't even find the smallest thing. Because he comes back and he says, look, this guy's no threat to the peace of Rome. Let him go home, for goodness sake. That frustrates the Sanhedrin. They want to kill him. So then they say, Pilate, what do you think Caesar would think about you ignoring a threat to treason? Now, Pilate at that moment is searching for a way to let an innocent man go, but at the same time keep the peace of Rome. So there's some goodness in Pilate, isn't there? Some goodness in him. At least he doesn't want to condemn an innocent man. But in some ways, he's acting more godly than the Sanhedrin, the religious people. <laughs> in other respects, it shows us that passing the buck is at least 2,000 years old. Because guess what happens? Pilate discovers that Jesus lives in Herod's jurisdiction. Oh, he says, oh, thank God. Literally, he probably doesn't say that. So he finds out Herod is uh, the ruler over that territory. So I'm just going to let Herod deal with Jesus. So he sends Jesus to Herod. Now, let's... Who's Herod? You've heard this all your life, but who's Herod? Well, you've got Herod the Great. In history, we know that he ruled the king, as king of the Jews under Roman authority from somewhere around 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. He's the same king that ordered the deaths of everybody two years and under when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, remember? Now, it's an interesting story about Herod the Great. He's a political survivor, and he's going to pass that on to his children, to his sons. Uh, but what is corroborated by other works in history is that when civil war broke out between Mark Antony and Octavian, Herod first sided with Antony and uh, Cleopatra VII, the queen of Egypt. However, Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra at Actium in 31 BC, and when that happened, Herod immediately switched sides. And he was able to convince Octavian, hey, I was on your side all along. 
Octavian is going to become Caesar Augustus. And when he becomes Caesar Augustus, he thinks Herod's been loyal to him. So he's going to make Herod the leader of the empire on the west flank. Herod is going to have a son called Herod Antipas. and He's going to pass all that cruelty and political pursuit down to his son. That is the Herod that Jesus is going to see, the very corrupt. When Herod hears that Jesus is coming, he's so happy because he says, wow, you know, Jesus is coming to see me, and I've heard he does all these cool tricks. So maybe he'll come and put on a freak show for me. Jesus knows that's his motivation, so Jesus just remains silent. Doesn't say anything, which frustrates Herod. And then the Bible tells us in Luke 23, and the chief priests and scribes stood and, uh, stood and vehemently accused him, which means the Sanhedrin's following Jesus wherever he goes. So when the Sanhedrin takes him to Pilate or to Herod, they're standing in the corner making accusations, saying, you better kill this guy, you better take care of this guy. And then the Bible says that the Herod's men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Now, the men of war, these are trained in brutality. What I'm trying to get you to see here is Jesus has already been through this experience of hematidrosis. He's been brutalized. He's been struck while blindfolded. He's been deprived of food and water. He stood before an illegal trial. And now the Sanhedrin is going to escort him from Herod back to Pilate. And it says the men of war took over. And they're going to strip him and beat him and mock him. And they're going to give him a robe of royalty that is purple as a way of mocking because purple is the color of royalty. After Jesus is already suffering from hunger, thirst, hematidrosis. Then step four. Stay with me now. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate's clever, though. He says, look, I, I cannot condemn an innocent man, but there's another way. During this festival, during this celebration year, it is customary for me to release one of your own back to you. So Pilate gets this idea, if I release Barabbas, this guy's a murderer. He murders Jews and Romans. So there's no way they're going to let me release Barabbas back to them instead of Jesus. But he was wrong. They said, give us Barabbas. They did not want to lose their power and position. And so they wanted him dead. Pilate comes out and he says, why? What, what do you want me to kill this guy? What has he done? They say, crucify him. They didn't give it a, an argument. There's no logic here. There's just violence. Crucify him. Let him be crucified. And then here's the operative term here. He said, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, but rather that a tumult was rising. Here we go. Here we go. Here's the peace. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, when I lived in New Zealand, about my ninth year, I did a similar message in trying to describe historically what happened to Jesus. Uh, a philosophy professor from Waikato University, Alexander Barat, wrote me a letter. He said, I saw your message on prime television. He said, I have to tell you that all those things you talked about, I didn't see them anywhere in Scripture. You must be reading a different Bible. The problem is, crucifixion and scourging was so well known, you didn't have to explain it. Everyone knew what it was. But I want to make sure that you do. When Pilate hands Jesus over, the first thing that would have happened is they would have had Jesus delivered to a garrison of soldiers who in turn would deliver him to the Praetorian Guard, who in turn would deliver him to 600 soldiers, a cohort, 600 soldiers to mock, ridicule, and punish Jesus. Say, so how do you know that? Roman history. Roman history is what happened when you were crucified. And the Romans were very good at it. 
Does the biblical account confirm this? Well, yes. Matthew 27 says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. As far as the Romans were concerned, they didn't know Jesus. They just thought he was another uh, criminal. He had been convicted and tried, and now their job was to punish him as much as possible. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know a man of compassion. They're just doing their job, and they do two things. The word that is used that's translated scourged is fragalao. And it it describes more the result of scourging than actually scourging itself because it means open bowel. The historian Eusebius, who was an eyewitness to many uh, crucifixions and scourgings, said this, The sufferer's veins were laid bare, and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. The skin and flesh were gashed to the bone in every direction, and where the armed ends of the lashes struck, deep bloody holes were torn. What's he talking about? The Roman lictor, when you were sent to be scourged, they would tie Jesus' arms around a a three-foot stump jutting out of the ground. And there were two whips that were used. The first whip would be a leather whip, seven strands, and at the end of those strands were metal balls. And the metal balls were designed to bruise the back and cause internal bleeding. So they would slap that whip on the back of Jesus. And nobody knows the number of times. People say, well, 39 lashes, but we don't really know. The Romans did it until they were satisfied. And then they will take Jesus' right arm, tie it to another stump jutting out of the ground, and do the same thing on the front. After they had severely wounded him, on the back and the front, they would take a second whip. And in the second whip, there were seven uh, leather strands and seven seven, uh, leather sockets. And in those sockets were placed very sharp chips of bone. And that was designed so that when the Roman lictor laid the whip on the back of Jesus, it would dig into the flesh, dig and stick, and then extract flesh as it was pulled away. That's why scourging in the first century was called halfway death. A lot of guys died before they even made it to the cross, even though the Romans didn't want you to die before you made it to the cross because they wanted the public to hear your screams when they nailed your hands and feet to the cross. So Jesus endures all this after after hematidrosis, after hunger, after thirst, after illegal trial, after brutality. And then in Matthew 27, it says, When they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now, each statement in Matthew shows you how they were really motivated to mock Jesus, not just beat him, because they placed what is called a clamus, which is a military cloak on Jesus, and it's made out of horrible material. It's like sandpaper cloth. And so they're, they're making and forcing Jesus to wear this after he's been wounded and brutalized on his chest and on his back. They mock Jesus. They put on Jesus' head a crown of thorns, which is made of uh, barbed two-inch quills that still grow in and around Jerusalem today, and they fashion a crown together. Almost as if to say, yeah, Jesus, what a great king you are. You sure are a great ruler. In fact, Caesar would only wear the laurel wreath on days after they had defeated an army. So it's their way of saying, yeah, Jesus, you're really defeating today. You're really a victorious leader today, aren't you? And then we're told that they placed the crown of thorns on him. They scourged him. They mocked him. And they placed a reed in his right hand, which was really a weak imitation of the scepter that Caesar would carry on festive occasions. So they're making him look like Caesar because they think he's violent or his violation, rather, is what? Claiming to be Caesar, a king. And they say, oh, hail, hail, king of the Jews. They sped on him, they grabbed the reed, they struck him on the head, driving the thorns deeper into his skull. And then the Bible says, when Jesus was crucified by Pilate, after a night of anguish and hours without water, 
then something interesting happens. And this is, this is a part of the story here. Medically speaking, what would have happened to Jesus? If, if the story is true, it's not some legend or fable, what would have happened to Jesus during this course? And he would have entered what medical practitioners call hypovolemic shock. Hypo, uh, low, vol, volume, emic, blood. He's losing a lot of blood. When you do that, four things happen to you. Number one, the heart races to pump blood that's not there. Your blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. You have no energy, no strength. The kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is there, and ultimately you just pass out. Now, is any of that indicated in the text? Well, yeah. In Luke 23, the Bible says, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, which is a city in North Africa, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And what we know in Roman history is you carry your own cross. You're carrying your own cross. It was called a patabolum. It weighed about 200 pounds. That was the cross beam, not the vertical, but the horizontal beam. The only reason that they would not let you continue to carry your cross and get somebody to help you is because they felt you were close to death. And they want to make sure that you're alive when they nail you to the cross. So they allowed somebody else to help Jesus carry the cross so that he would still be alive to feel the pain of crucifixion. Now, here's what's interesting about that. When they crucified Jesus, and it's, it's important that we understand that, I mean, death is death. P punishment is punishment. Torture is torture. But still, even today, people believe, many people believe that crucifixion is the worst way to die because it's slow. It's so slow. Today, even in states who hold uh, capital punishment, it's, uh, you're strapped down and you're either injected with poisons or you're bolted to a wooden chair and bolts of electricity shoot through you. In both cases, though, the circumstances are highly controlled. Death comes quickly and there are medical examiners there to kind of document when you die. But crucifixion is the opposite. It's not quick and it's not predictable. They would lay the victim down with outstretched arms we know, historically speaking, they didn't drive the nails here. I know you've heard that, or some of you know this already. They drive the nail here in the wrist because it'll tear the hand. You won't be able to stay on the cross. So it right against the, the, the bone that is, separates the wrist and the hand. And they hang you and drive the nail. They are five to seven-inch spikes tapered off to, a, lo to a, a long, sharp point. How do you know this? Again, just in Roman history. People like Tacitus, even Eusebius or Josephus or... Plenty of the younger, plenty of the older. We have enough history to know what happens in a crucifixion. In fact, in 1960, the Harvard Theological Review said that the Bible is wrong because there's astonishing little evidence to show that victims in the first century were crucified instead of just hung by ropes on the tree. Until 1968, archaeologists in Jerusalem found 36 bodies of Jews who had been crucified during the uprising in Rome in AD 70. So we have now archaeological facts that nails went through the wrist and went through the ankle bone. We know that when Jesus was crucified, the nail would go through what is called the median nerve. That is so painful. You ever hit that place in your elbow where you kind of went, wow, that hurt. Now just imagine taking a pair of pliers and just squeezing that and holding it. I mean, it's, it's a painful, painful experience. When they hoisted Jesus on the, the uh, horizontal and the vertical bar, then the, the stump goes into the ground, and, of course, the, the nails tear through the flesh. The pain is, in, is incredible. But ultimately, death does not come by uh, pain. <laughs> it comes by asphyxiation. Because when you're on the cross, your knees are bent, and they dislocate both your shoulders to hang you on the cross. 
And when you're on the cross, your diaphragm is in a, uh, an inhale position. So you've got air in, but you can't get it out. And to get it out, you have to push yourself up on the cross. Remember his back from the scourging and the splinters on the wooden cross. So he's pushing himself up so that he can let air out to get his next breath. But sooner or later, as you're hanging on the cross and you've given up the, you don't have the physical energy to push yourself up on the cross anymore, you die of suffocation. Which is exactly why Jesus would have known when he's about to die, he could say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He knew that death was imminent. I could go on and on about crucifixion, about what Jesus suffered. The Stoic Seneca, uh, in defense of suicide rather than crucifixion, wrote, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his blood drop by drop? rather than expiring once for all. Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels, that's as a result of scourging, on shoulders and chest, and drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony? He would have many excuses for dying even before mounting the cross. It was his way of saying it would be better to commit suicide than to go through a scourging and a crucifixion. You know, we also know that, you know, the story when the soldiers take the sword and pierce the side of Jesus, and the Bible says blood and water flowed, I used to think, oh boy, myth. Well, no, it's not. Because what happens when you go into hypovolemic shock, it causes a sustained rapid heartbeat, which leads to heart failure, which leads to collection of fluid in the membrane of the heart called pericardial effusion, and around the lungs, which is called pleural effusion. And so the Romans were piercing his side, not to see if he moved, but to see if water had gathered around and blood and water flows. As a matter of fact, John 19 tells us that, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Now, you say, Jeff, I thought we were in Mark 15. Well, all of this is the context of Mark 15. It's all the side story of what's happening in this narrative. But now the question is, so? So what? Big deal. Leighton Smith is a radio host in New Zealand, and near my last years in New Zealand, he made the comment one time, I don't believe the Bible story about what happened to Jesus because no one could live through that. Now, can I get theological just for a moment? Well, here's the problem. God has to keep Jesus alive until he's crucified, or otherwise prophecy is not fulfilled and everything is undone. The devil is trying to kill Jesus before he gets to the cross, which means it's quite possible Maybe Jesus would have died. He had enough pain and suffering to die. But God the Father kept him alive long enough to do what he needed to do on the cross, which is fulfill hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy. You know, it's amazing that a guy like King David can write about what will happen to the Messiah when he comes 500 years before he even shows up and 500 years before crucifixion is even invented. It's things like that that really got me thinking about, wow, this is really prophecy coming to pass. Leighton Smith also said Jesus was a failure because he died on the cross. Well, it depends, doesn't it? What if that was the ultimate goal of his life in the first place? You know, I don't know if Bill's told you about our friend Tony Bennett. Has he told you about Tony Bennett, who just won the national championship? He hasn't told you? Okay, well, Bill and I are really good friends with Tony Bennett, who coaches the Virginia Cavaliers. I don't know why he has. He's just a humble guy. I'm not so humble. He's our friend. <laughs> and both Bill and I have been talking to Tony. I talked to him on the phone a couple of days before uh, the championship game. Actually, it was Sunday, so the day before. 
I said, you know what? I said, how do you feel about, you know, being the first number one? I'm sure he's been asked this because the year before, he was the first number one seed in NCAA history to lose to a 16th seed. And the media kept asking him that over and over. How does it feel? How does it feel? And Tony said, it's because the media don't know why I coach. I don't coach just to win championships. I coach to build character. And I said, you know what, Tony? If you win tomorrow night, you're going to be the first number one seed in history to get beat by a 16th seed and come back and win the whole thing. And if your goal is to build character, (laughs) that's a fine way to show that character has been built. It depends on what your goal is. The goal of Jesus, now this is important. This is almost the end. Almost the end. This, This is important because the goal of Jesus was to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. The goal of Jesus was to die and suffer the punishment you deserve. And I want to tell you something. I have lived most of my life overseas. Most of my life, I've either been in Africa or South Pacific. And we are different in the West. We've heard the story so much that it doesn't melt you anymore. You can hear this story of what Christ did for you, and you're not moved emotionally anymore. It's just so old to you. But the Bible says if this doesn't happen, Isaiah said, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who in the room has not strayed? Who in the room has not sinned, even since yesterday? So if that's true, if you know your sin, if you know it, then when you hear a story like this, like when I preached this story in Africa, I'm just going to tell you, when I preached this story in India, as I did a few months ago, they were weeping in the aisles. What's wrong with us? It doesn't touch us anymore. You know why? You've heard it since you were a kid. And quite frankly, in the West, we just don't think we're that bad. We don't need something like that. I mean, that's for really the dregs of society. I don't need something like that. D.L. Moody was the greatest illustrator ever. If you, if, you know, anybody who goes into preaching tries to read as much as they can. And his little girl once asked him, Daddy, why did Jesus have to die? And D.L. Moody said, you see that truck over there? Would you rather be run over by the truck or the shadow of the truck? She said, well, the, the shadow of the truck. He said, why? He said, because it wouldn't hurt so much. He said, sweetheart, Jesus was run over by the truck of God's justice so that you could only be run over by the shadow. You deserve and I deserve everything he got. He took it from us. The problem is we just don't think we're that bad. We've been desensitized. But the, the God, and, and plus, in our culture, we, we love a God of love. Oh, God is love. God is love. God loves everybody. But there's no requirements of him. None. God is love. God is love. We never talk about what he, what he requires. And so it's brilliant what God does on the cross. Because in one great act, he reveals both sides of his nature. He reveals how holy he is. Because every time there was a crucifixion, Rome wanted you to notice what happens to those who violate the peace of Rome. But every time you as a Christian look at the cross, what God wants you to do is to see how vile and ugly sin is and how, the, how it causes damage to culture and society and nations. You're supposed to get this vivid imagery of this is the horrific result of sin. Look. But we don't. Because we don't think we're that bad. And we just know this God of love who loves us but requires nothing from us. On the cross, you're supposed to remember, man, God is holy. Holy. Thank God he's also loving. Because rather than punish me, he punishes his own son. That's the dual nature of God. Holy requires him to punish sin. Love motivates him to forgive it. 
but you can't have one without the other. You know, a, a great example of this, you know, I thought my mommy and daddy told me I was a fantastic basketball player. My mommy told me I was the best. And I thought I was going to be playing for the Lakers one day. And, uh, <coughs> yeah, <coughs> funny, isn't it? After my junior year, though, of uh, playing in college, very small, about as small as you can get, I was invited to go to Tennessee Tech to play in a, uh, in a league of players who were trying to make what is known then as the Continental Basketball Association. It was a farm league to the NBA. And I knew some coaches and some coaches, you know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. But I showed up, and about five minutes into it, I realized I did not belong there. I don't know what game I had been playing, but it wasn't basketball. <laughs> I was a, a big fish in a very small pond. Ted Turner, who owned TBS for years, in the USA Today said this, I don't want anybody to die for me. I've had a few drinks, a few girlfriends. If that's going to put me away from God, then so be it. The number one enemy to the cross is the gospel of moralism. And that's why it doesn't melt us anymore. We think, we're not that bad. You know, I, I mean, I don't get all hot and bothered about Jesus because I'm okay. I'm comfortable with how I'm living. I'm not worrying about a day of reckoning. So stop worrying about me, Pastor Jeff. Don't worry about me. I'm good. Why don't you go find the dregs of society, the real bad guys. They're the ones who need the cross. Well, the problem is you're a big fish in a small pond, and you're about to meet Michael Jordan. You're comparing your, yourself to the wrong people. The Bible clearly says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody tried, nobody made it. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not even one. Any of you, I'm old, so I'm going to show it here. Anybody remember Jack Johnson? Oh, man, great musician. He did a song call, Where Did All the Good People Go? I got the answer. They were never here in the first place. <laughs> the Bible says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. In other words, when you die, God's not going to say, man, you did good. You try real hard. Come on in. There's only one way. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And i got to tell you, if we're not moved by this anymore, it's because we don't think we really need it. Because even Jesus said, who loves most? He who has been forgiven most. And the reason we don't love like we should love is because we just don't think we need it that much. We're good, basically good moral people. But there's something else, because of timeless in this. There's something else, though. There's, some, there's another theme in the Passion story. What is it? It's the same thing that the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and Herod, they all had it in common, and it's this, power and position. Do you know why, even though this story of grace is so beautiful and a gift from God, is because you don't want to give up control of your life. You do not want somebody else to be Lord of your life. You want the grace, but you don't want him to be Lord of your life. And so you teeter on the edge. You have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of man. And somehow you think you're okay. Even though the scripture says, man, you're either all in or not in at all. So when your heart is really touched by the cross, man, when you, when you have an emotional experience and you realize what Christ really did for you, guess what's going to happen? Your end goal changes. So what I'm saying is grace is grace and it's beautiful. But the Bible seems to say if you've really experienced grace, there's a cause and effect. And here's what it is. The ultimate goal of your life becomes to be like Jesus. you got other goals, but your ultimate goal is that. And if you're in your life and you're forced to choose between that and something else, you'll always choose to be like him. 
That's why James says in James 1, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Does he mean action saves you? No, he's simply making the argument. Show me somebody who's been touched by it. If you've really, listen now, if you've really been touched by what Jesus did for you on the cross and you really think that there's no chance you have of spending eternity with God without what he did for you on the cross, then you will be moved to such an emotional state that you'll never be perfect and you will have failures, but your primary goal and primary objective is to be like Christ. And when you fail, you will be sad. And if you can fail and there's no shame or sadness, the cross hasn't touched your heart. You haven't gotten it yet. It's just a get-out-of-hell-free card for you. What is your ultimate goal, folks? What do you really want out of this life? What do you really want? You have other goals, and that's not wrong. What is your primary goal? And if you can say, you know what, more than anything else, I just I want to be like Christ, you've been touched. Your heart has been touched by the cross. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you and praise you for the power of your word from Mark 15 that reminds us of what Jesus did for us. And I pray that we would come to terms with who we are deep down inside and there would be a renewed motivation to be like Jesus in every aspect of our life. Knowing that when we fail, there is grace and the cross meets our need like nothing else. But to be reminded when we are touched emotionally by what Christ has done for us, when we're truly touched, we will seek him above and beyond all things and our primary objective will be to be like him so that a world that is far from God may learn how to come near forgive us and help us oh God renew our faith in Christ's name